back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. With me today is Richard. Richard, what are you up to? Hey, DJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Got a new mic and everything. I think this podcast is starting to come together a little bit. Well, yeah, it's, you sound great on your side. I don't know how I sound on my side. I got one of these little my, my uh, Apple headsets. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad, actually. Um, we don't have any video yet on the podcast, so to explain to folks what we're seeing here, both of us actually just set up some of these uh, Logitech uh, 920 and 930 little webcams, and Richard has one of those white earbuds with the built-in microphone on it. Uh, Richard, say something. I'm talking now. <laughs> and you know, honestly, for as little as you spend on one of those, it doesn't sound too bad. I'm actually using something a little bit fancier here. I finally did manage to get my hands on a Rode Procaster, so I've got that as well as I'm looking at it right now. This is a Stedman filter. Uh, one of you guys out there recommended it, and I'll make sure and put that in the show notes. Uh, this is a steel filter going over the top of the Rode Procaster. And again, we're still recording this directly into the Tascam DR60D, which seems to do a pretty decent job of recording the cast so far. I haven't heard any complaints from anybody. No, it's sounding great every time I hear it. So pre-show, we were talking a little bit about the three-axis stabilizer, and you mentioned you weren't sure if you wanted to purchase one of those uh, Nebulous 4000 series units. Yeah, you know, a couple of the people I watch, you know, Dave Dugdell, he was holding off on it. It seems really good, but... I just don't know yet. And then and then I think, what's well, M's building something? Yeah, there's a number of DIY options for the exact same thing. That's why when the three-axis stabilizers first started showing up on the market, we actually saw a lot of them on Kickstarter and some of the other like funding, crowdfunding campaigns. It's because the controller itself, as well as the motors and everything, are all off the shelf. You can actually go buy all the motors and all the parts that you need in order to build one of these three-axis stabilizers yourself. And then it's just a matter of tuning all of the motors and controls and everything to get it to work correctly. The Nebulous 4000 and some of these other newer units that are coming out are basically just that whole thing packaged into like a really nice format. But, you know, if you wanted to duct tape something together, you can build one of those three-axis stabilizers for... 600 bucks or 500 bucks or lower it i mean just depends on how cheap you want to go and how small a camera you want to fly the issue i've run into with the three axis stabilizers and i'm going to put this out there because not a lot of people have been talking about it is that they're only three axis and you don't walk in three axis you walk in five axis so they are doing some cool stuff i saw last year at nab and a little bit less running around at ces those backpacks did you see those backpacks where they got like the you know like yeah there's a whole rig on you there but yeah so you wear a rig and then it's got like a bungee cord coming off of the top with like some kind of counterweight system i guess yeah i i saw the bungee you know it's 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 been a year since of that so i'm trying to remember exactly but i remember seeing this bungee thing and it was supposed to help it out but you know with the cameras running their in-body stabilization that probably compensates a little the reason i'm not jumping on this nebula 4000 is it still looks like I have enough stuff to learn just with video and audio and editing to yeah. spend time on learning how to calibrate. One of these things, once there are really just plug and play, then I'll really think about getting one. Yeah, and I think for now at least, and even in the near term, 
there's enough numbers and things that you need to really adjust and get fine-tuned for the camera body that you're using and the lens that you have attached to it to make these kind of a hard thing to get into. And on top of that, there isn't really any specific way right now to lock your camera down to the exact same position every single time. So you're still kind of tweaking it and moving it around and doing all that kind of stuff to get it to work right. If I did get one, I would get it for that uh, the Panasonic LX100 I have and just leave that on there all the time. Yeah, that's probably a good option since, you know, lens and everything all in one nice little form factor there. All right, moving on to the news. Time for the news. First up on the news list here, I've got reports from Sony. There might be a possible E-mount APS-C camera body with integrated image stabilization. This has been a pretty hot topic on the A7 Mark II. And now if they bring that to the APS-C lineup, that would bring in a very high-end, lower-priced image stabilization camera. What do you think about going to APS-C for image stabilization if you could, say, save $1,000 or something like that? It's awesome. And then, you know, automatically your your jello effect is going to be less. That's even true. On the, you know, just, just for filming. And then um, it's probably, you know, there's a few things. It's going to have less heat because the sensor's smaller. There's a lot of things. That can, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see 4K on that in camera before the full frame one. The only thing about 4K, though, is Sony's been really hesitant to even give that to some of their high-end cameras. The the famous F5 hack that's been kind of floating around, where all it was was a INI file attached in text on the memory card that was change a few lines and bam, now you're shooting 4K on the F5 versus the F55. That's... I think they're like, what, $30,000 camera versus a $14,000 camera? Yeah, it's it's three quarters that, and then there's the other twenty five percent that it's. They're also trying to get it to run within, you know. Okay, on the Canon, your hack, the uh, Magic Lantern hack. Yeah, it, it uses the sensor more. The camera gets hotter. Well, there so they're is... also keeping. They keep some of this stuff. Yeah, they keep in wraps to make you buy stuff, but they also want to keep it in tolerances. You know. Well, because if you. If you look, if you look at the the Panasonic, yeah, and the Samsung, the Panasonic stays in between eighty and eighty seven degrees. Yeah, the Samsung, I saw something where I was showing it was getting up to about a hundred degrees. Okay, and and the Sony A seven is at ninety seven degrees, just normal recording. Well, I've got actually some notes on that uh, since we're kind of jumping around a little bit on four K. <laughs> Um, I actually wrote a post quite a while ago about this. The Sony A7S has a proprietary Sony Boyons, Boyons, however you pronounce that, X yeah. sensor, uh, uh, controller chip on it and main processor. And that's actually a Sony CXD90027GF. That's the exact same chip that they have installed in their AX100. Now, when you're talking about temperatures, the sensor itself, because you can output uh, 4K from the HDMI port means that the sensor is actually reading 4K all the time out to the processor. So the yeah. only thing that needs to happen in the processor is to condense the 12 megapixel sensor image to an 8.8 megapixel 4K image and then convert it to H.264 or H.265. 
the Sony AX100, which is a Handycam that shoots 4K footage, is working off a 20 megapixel sensor. So you're actually having to do more image processing on a 20 megapixel image than you would on a 12 megapixel image. And the sensor is still running full bore, whether you're working on the smaller sensor or the bigger sensor. So less pixels, you're not changing the the temperature of the sensor itself. It's the CPU that would be handling the back end. But doesn't the bigger sensor put off more heat than a smaller sensor? The sensor itself will put off the exact same amount of heat, whether they are recording 4K or they're recording 1080p. Okay. Because I the sensor you, is, is basically taking an entire read of the sensor and then scaling it. If it wasn't doing that, then you wouldn't get the full frame look in video. So okay. 1080p isn't what's coming out of the sensor. 4K, well, more than 4K because 12 megapixels is coming out of that sensor and going straight to the CPU. And well, so maybe it's maybe it's the size of the casing on the AX. It what, could the AX100? be. Well, the AX100 is it's really small. It's like the size of a soda can. I can't imagine that, especially because of the way they usually design those. The it has a flip out screen, so they usually design the control board to be uh, front to back in a flat up and down pattern. So because of that, you don't have a ton of body mass on the camera itself to cool any sensor that's that's running on there. The image sensor is up to the front, but it's wired back to the control board, which is a long straight line all the way to the back of the camera. So if it's built that way, which I'm pretty sure it is, and it's using the same exact uh, CPU in the camera, the AX100 is basically doing the exact same thing that the A7S could do internally. Now, this gets a little bit weird, but if you think about what's going on with the CPU itself, if the CPU is able to handle 20 megapixels and scale that down to a 4K image, that means that the CPU is doing more processing of the image itself to get to that than it would if it was bringing in a 12 megapixel sensor, because that means it's doing less comparing and scaling and you know adapting that 12 megapixel down to 8.8 or 8 or whatever for 4K footage. So for the heating issue, I know they say that, but it kind of seems like it's a farce that they're just throwing that out there so that people don't get really upset at them. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. You know, you're probably not. We'll probably see a hack on the A7S that you could record the whole time, but. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's the same thing. And I'm looking at my notes here. The Sony f5 and i'm getting to make sure i'm getting these numbers right the f5 was a sixteen thousand dollar camera and it was only able supposedly to record 1080p now it doesn't have the global shutter like the f55 and it, the sensor is not quite as good as the f55 but the f55 recorded 4k at thirty thousand dollars the f5 when they hacked it was able to record 4k for sixteen thousand and you yeah. no longer have to buy the five thousand dollar 4k upgrade module so then if you can do that, what is going on here? You know, basically, it seems to me what Sony's doing is they're taking the exact same chip and then just changing out the sensors for whatever and raising the price because it's really easy for a company, especially if you're making a, a wide line of products like that, to create one CPU, one yeah. set of RAM or one set of ROM modules, whatever you want to add on it, all the extra bits and then hook it to whatever sensor they want and shove it in a body. So if you look at all of Sony's lineup, every single one of them has the same CXD900 sensor in, or um, CPU in it. So if that CPU is able to run 4K in one camera, 
then well, why can't it do it? On why the can't it do it in the other camera other than firmware limitations? And that's pretty much it. It's almost I'm surprised no one's gotten more excited about this or upset or yelled at Sony or whatever. The chip itself is obviously capable of doing 4K because it's doing it in another camera. And if that's the case, maybe it's a heating issue, but it seems pretty unlikely given the size of a Handycam that it would have any more cooling efforts involved in it than the, you know, the Sony A7S body or even the A7 Mark II or what have you. So, right, and then and then the other thing is, this, if the A7 body wasn't capable. Why did they just make it a little, you know, I mean, I don't know. The GH, the GH4 can dissipate heat very well. Yeah. Why didn't they take a cue from that? I mean, Sony's a much bigger company. Well, and you could figure this out a little bit easier if they were using an off-the-shelf uh, CPU. The I, I believe it's the Venus or Venice engine is what they call it in the, the Panasonic cameras. That's a modified ARM processor. So you can actually go look up the specs for the ARM processor setup that it's using and see that it has a, an H.264 encoder. It has built-in 4K handling capabilities. The Sony chip is proprietary to Sony, and they don't give out any data sheets or information on it. So you don't really know what it's capable of. And the only reason you know that it has that particular chip in it is because it's printed on the CPU chip itself. And luckily, people like uh, LensRental.com were nice enough to do a teardown of it so I could actually read the chip information off of there and find out. And I did a lot of sleuthing on this. I called a couple of chip manufacturers, and I even checked to make sure which chip was the RAM chip and which one was the CPU chip. And it turns out that Sony just doesn't release anything on this CXD900 chipset that they're using. So you don't know. You do know that it's in another uh, camera and it records 4K. So I think you're probably right. They're greedy. <laughs> I, I I think so. I'm. I think so. And then you know, just like I think that they probably were able to put this axis out a little sooner. I don't know. They probably eh, they have it. Yeah, they're coming out with it, they could do it. Yeah, they're greedy. I think. <laughs> The other camera to look at of note for this sort of thing is the Canon 1DC versus the 1DX. You notice right away that when both of those cameras were announced, there's a huge price difference. The 1DX was around $6,000 and the 1DC was around uh, $12,000. And when you looked at the hardware and looked at the teardown, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the cameras. One had yeah. slightly thicker traces on the board, which you know may have been an issue. Uh, I could see with the the large sensor, the larger sensor, and the larger megapixel count on the One DC and One DX, respectively, that it might have some heating issues, or they might have had to do a little bit of something different. But you notice Magic Lantern said, "No, we're not going to touch any of this. We're not going to do anything with this. We don't want to get sued by Sony. I mean, by Canon. So we're Canon, just going to leave it completely alone." And I think that's the same thing. And now as we see prices falling, well, the 1DX is dropping down and so is the 1DC. And these are falling into almost lining, lining up with each other. The 1DC, I, I've heard reports as low as $5,000. And the 1DX has been on sale for 4000 and some change. So they're almost leveling out to the same price now. Are you talking about used 5000 on the 1DC? Yeah, on the used on the 1DC. I, I hear seen the, it I hear the price is coming down new. It's going to come down a couple thousand in Yeah, a they've months. already announced um well, I believe it was in uh yen currency, but uh the yen currency they were showing a price drop of what was equivalent to like $3000 or $2000 American. But the 1DC has already come way down on eBay. There's been a few of them showing up for uh 5000 and $6000. 
And that was a $12,000 camera, you know, what, seven months ago, a year ago I at would, the most? I, I, I can't buy anything off eBay. I mean, yeah, that's true. But, but I'm not good on that eBay. I always get, I always get uh, messed up on. But, I mean, at five 6000 it's 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 so it's tempting. really tempting. I, if, I, if I see one new for 9000 but if it comes down to 9000 at that point, you know, yeah. You might buy a real camera. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because I mean, we were talking about this last time. Was you know with the A7F, A7S, beautiful, beautiful picture at 1080p. Yeah. But you got to buy the Shogun, and 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 then you got to add everything on there. You're almost at that price, and yep. then you can use all, all that wonderful Canon glass that is not fly by wire, unless you're using the STM lenses. Yeah. But you know, it, uh, that's tempting. Yeah, and I don't know. I guess I see what's happening right now. Panasonic was kind of the underdog for a while, so they're able to kind of move a little bit more agilely with this stuff. They're bringing new lenses to the market. They're kind of using some, they're kind of piggybacking off of Olympus's success, and they're able to move quickly with a new chipset, and people don't get really mad at them when they release a new camera every year that has something new in it. Canon, because of the size of the company and the amount of developers and everything else, what is it? It's a, I think a three year cycle, four year cycle on average for their cameras. Yep. Uh, yep. The one or the five D Mark II that was four years about before the five D Mark III came out. The seven D we're just now seeing a Mark II of that, and that's been out for around four years. The only lineup that moves faster is the T two I, but you could argue that the T two I to the T three I to the T four I to the five I I think is what they're on now. Those are so minor of an iteration that you're not really getting much in the way of major upgrades. They've no, been weren't. running on the same 7D Mark I sensor on that entire Rebel lineup for the last five years or so. and Five, six years. Yeah, and, and nothing's there is changed. Not much diff- there's not much difference from the T2i all the way up. I mean, you have the, the focusing. Yeah. But it's not really, it's not the dual pixel focusing. It's There's not much to it now. And you're right on the Panasonic, they've kind of lived off Olympus a little bit because if you just had to go with Panasonic only lenses, it wouldn't be much of a, mm, yeah. that would be tough, but you have those nice Olympus lenses. Well, and Panasonic's been slowly releasing good glass and don't get me wrong. I've tested out uh, several of their lenses, like the 12 to 35 millimeter and it wasn't bad. It just, I ended up going to the Olympus cause it was a little bit higher quality but I still, I, I bought the uh, Panasonic uh, 7 to 14 millimeter because they offer a wide angle lens for uh, M443 that is not available from any other camera manufacturer, unless you want to go manual focus like uh, uh, Rokinon or, or something like that. Yeah. And so that is nice that you have multiple companies feeding the same lens system and ecosystem. If Canon and Nikon were somehow to able to create something that could work on both cameras i think that would really push people closer to the the full frame aspect of things and move them back into their sort of like dslr ecosystem as if man i could get this cheap nikon lens you know or this cheap canon lens or whatever i maybe that's wrong i that's kind they're of a gray area they're never gonna do that, that. Is, they're never gonna do that it, you know i mean because quite honestly then why don't they just they should make their system available for all the other ones because if Sony could take advantage of those glass, the gla- Canon glass better, Canon yep. would be selling glass all over the place if these other lenses could use it easier, but they're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Well, and the other thing too is even lens manufacturers that are making 
uh, third-party lenses for Nikon and Canon, most of those guys, including Tamron, Tokina, and Samyung, or, well, not Samyung, they don't have an autofocus lens yet, but uh, Yongyo was the other one that was coming to mind. Uh, they all, well, and Sigma too, I suppose, but all of those guys are basically reverse engineering the lens control system for the lenses and then selling third-party lenses. They're not paying for patents from Canon or from Nikon to generate lenses for those camera bodies. And because of that, you have issues like uh, the last uh, Sigma F uh, 50 millimeter F1.4, which the not the art, but the one previous to that, it had focusing issues on Canon cameras because it wasn't quite hitting the mark every time. And they had to do a firmware update for it where you sent your lens in. Well, now Sigma's gotten smart in the next round of lenses they issued with a USB port, which is awesome. Yeah. Now you can buy that little calibrator kit and calibrate your lenses properly for drift and what have you. And that's great, but they wouldn't have to do that if they were paying Canon royalties for their proprietary mount. With M43, a bunch of uh, manufacturers got together and were like, okay, here's the standard. We're going to go with this standard and we're going to use it on everything. And you guys can be all part of this working group and get all the information on how this is set up. So then you're getting the benefit of getting, you know, stuff from Panasonic and stuff from Olympus. And, you know, I, Fuji makes some four thirds camera lenses, I believe. You know, it's like the whole group of those guys are manufacturing oh, stuff. Yeah. And then JVC, their new, their new video cameras are going to be working micro four thirds. Yeah, exactly. I was actually looking at uh, that during the last show and we were talking about it. The, I don't remember what the model number is off the top of my head, but the uh, JVC camera, I think it's $4,000 and it's uh, a, yeah. it Super shoots 4K, 35. Super 35, and it has, um, you know, an M43 mount, which is great. And you can use all your M43 lenses. And yeah, it's a, uh, oh, go ahead. Turns in, it, it turns into a, was it Super 16 when you use a more uh, M43s? Yep, yep. And you can put your speed booster on there or whatever, and bam, you're good to go. And that one, that's, that's kind of what the, uh, uh, I believe it was an AG or AH, whatever, 100 from Panasonic should have been to yeah. begin with. Uh, yeah. That camera was cool, and it was a great idea, but it was a giant box, and it was kind of weird. It was using the sensor technology from the GH2, so it wasn't very good in low light. And no. now companies like JVC have had the option of kind of sitting back and letting all of this mature first and then jumping in and getting something that's kind of hitting the mark a little bit better than uh, what was coming out in the past. Oh yeah. That was, you know, and that was one big box and I, and I had one for two months. Yeah. I used it three times. <laughs> yeah. I, I looked at one of those and I was kind of excited simply because XLR inputs and, you know, regular color bars and stuff like that. But, uh, it wasn't enough to really bring me over at the time. And no. I saw the price drop so fast on those. They started out I believe it was like five thousand was the retail price. Yeah, and then, so like, yeah, and then it was down to th uh, four thousand, and then pretty soon three thousand. Then they were starting to show up on eBay used for like nineteen hundred to two thousand. And I haven't checked recently, but I would guess they're under two thousand dollars to buy that whole system. And you know yeah. that's less than half the value of what you paid for it a couple of years ago. Yeah, and it was just wasn't worth it because the GH three came out, and I was like, ah. No, yep. you have that nice small. I mean, because with that, with these small cameras, you can build yourself a rig that you like exactly. versus having to have this huge brick. Yeah. That's why I can't understand some of these other ones. I mean, but then again, I'm not a shooter that needs these big cameras. Um, it's a different type of uh, beast. Well, for uh, news agencies and, and things like that, 
this sort of thing is pretty nice. And, you know, for documentary shooters and what have you, uh, I still see a lot of news agencies using pre-2004 HD cameras that they spent thirty dollars and $40,000 on when that was still kind of cutting edge. And they haven't moved to anything else because they have such a huge investment and capital in that camera that they want to use it for as long as possible. But those cameras are starting to fall by the wayside as really good stuff comes out, especially compared to those old monsters and people want to move to something like this JVC camera. So I think that's why we're starting to see a lot of these 4k and 1080p cameras in the three to $4,000 range that have a lot of decent features is they're probably going to start picking up the slack for news agencies and any ENG work in general that they need a, a new camera and maybe they finally busted the old HD camera that they bought back in the early 2000s, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, what is it? Is, is FS, I'm trying to think of FS, is it 7? Is that the new one? Yeah, they have the, the FS7 one? and the FS700. The 7 is it's 4K, right? Uh, I believe you need an actual extra module in order to record 4K. It's again uh, one of those deals where, and I'm going to type this in as I'm talking just to make sure, but I believe it's one of those deals where uh, you need a, shogun, you need or something a like shogun or something like that. And it outputs 4K via HDMI, but it doesn't do it internally. Um, yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm looking right now. The FS7 is uh, 4K via external recorder only. So, okay, so it's just like having an A7 again. So, yeah, that's another uh, smack in the face. And then uh, the. I think even I it's, you, it's a firmware thing in that one too, probably. It, it could be. I, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find any teardown information on the FS7 or the FS700. Otherwise, I would have researched that a little bit, a um, little bit more. But I'm looking right now, and uh, let's see. Even the FS700, you have to buy the AXS R5 recorder or use an external recorder. So both the 700 and the 7 our external 4K only. That's Shogun time. All right. Yeah, yeah, I was just bringing that up because you're talking about these things going to these newer things. They could be smaller units. But you know what? I was also reading something where, I mean, there, there was a picture. It's not on Twitter. Uh, and, and somebody has a selfie stick yeah. with a microphone plugged into an uh, uh, a iPad. I'm mean, not what? iPad, iPhone. And I can see that happening right now, the way things are going. I can totally see that going and happening. Huh. I've seen people on YouTube and stuff covering uh, major events like CES and what have you with a selfie stick. And you're thinking like, really? You know, you're out there and your sponsors are paying you to go. And that's what you're Yeah, but that's, that's what media is now. It's, it's, it's the internet. I mean, come on. I, I get all my news on my laptop. <laughs> that's true. And people don't care as much about high-quality stuff anymore. They just want the information right away. When I'm watching the 65-inch TV, I'm watching uh, the originals or something like that, you know, some kind of stupid show. Not uh, (laughs) not watching it for CNN. Wow. All right, moving on down the line here. Uh, We've kind of wandered a little bit, but uh, Windows 10, I've been using this as a pre-release for a few months on a test machine here in the studio, and it looks as though... By tomorrow, they'll be announcing pricing. And when I say tomorrow, if you're listening to this cast, most likely you're going to be hearing it the day of, which is Wednesday the 21st. And I'm hoping that they do something smart with this pricing. If you remember back to um, 
Windows 8 release, they had that early bird special where it was like $30 or $40 for a digital copy of Windows 8. I know you're a Mac user, and so buying an operating system is a thing of the past for you. You exactly. You don't pay for anything anymore. So no, we don't. We don't pay for an operating system. We don't pay for a word processor, a, a spreadsheet. We don't pay for any of that <laughs> stuff. You know, and we don't even pay for uh, you buy you buy one copy of Final Cut Pro. You're set. Yeah, free upgrades <laughs> for life, man. That's the way to be. But but this is very interesting, and um, actually, we talked last time. You were telling me about how Windows has changed a little bit, and you can set it up to run like the old versions that I was telling you, uh, 98, 95, whatever it was. And uh, I actually was playing with the computer the other day a little bit on this Windows. So nice. I'm kind of looking forward to this just to try it out because I'm never going to be a Windows guy again, but I could be a part-time Windows guy. Well, for me personally, a lot of it actually boils down to some of the the major software I use on a regular basis. I occasionally have to compose audio or create some kind of uh, jingle or something like that. And I know things like Ableton Live are available on both uh, Windows as well as Mac. But then you have certain programs like Sony's SoundForge, which I use on a regular basis. And I, you might not be familiar with it. It's an audio wave editing program that yeah. allows you to do some major stuff to your to your audio if you need to you know, do limiting or compression or noise reduction or what have you. It doesn't work as smoothly with your editing package as, say, Adobe Edition, but it has a lot stronger features that I use when I really need to fix some audio that's been horribly recorded or I've done a really bad job. <laughs> You know, honestly, it's usually to fix my mess up if I wasn't paying attention to it or wasn't, you know, I had one a headphone off while I was doing something else and not paying attention yeah. to what was going on. But that's stuff like that. And I do some uh, CAD work and things that are only available for Windows right now. And because of that, it's kind of kept me in the camp and I haven't had a reason to move over because I look at it and I'm like, well, this isn't there. This isn't available. This isn't available. No. And so then I stop and say, well, what's the point? And it's actually, that's been the same thing for me with Linux. A lot of, I know a lot of it, software engineers that work in Linux all the time. And they're like, you need to, you need to hear a real computer, you know, move to Linux. And it's like, what? My, my brother's a Mac pro guy. I mean, he's a Mac guy. He's a, uh, he fixes them, builds, you know, does all that stuff, uh, license, whatever it is. And he doesn't even use Mac anymore. He doesn't use IBM. He switched over to Linux and and then he has to do all these different workarounds because yeah. he's on. I'm like, I'm like, it, it's wasted time. Either pick. No, he won't do it. But yeah, they're over. He's over on the Linux. On the Windows, um, I you know I do miss working with Sonar. And I was trying to look up if it can be on Mac or not, but I don't think it I is. don't think it is. I think it's PC only. And Sonar and, is something I use on a regular basis as well. If I'm editing a large audio project, I do bands on occasion. And when you're mixing down a big track set like that, having sonar, and I know a lot of people use Pro Tools, but I kind of grew up in the cakewalk camp because I was PC for so long that I ended up learning along the way from cakewalk to sonar. And now I'm, I believe I'm running sonar X1, which is like 11, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's something that I've used for so long. I don't want to switch. And I know I pay for my Adobe Cloud subscription and I get Audition again, which has a multi-track function and it allows you to do many tracks simultaneously. But because I never learned that really well, and I know it pretty decently now, but I mean, 
it stops me. It's like, oh, well, why don't I just do it in sonar? Because it's easier. I know how to do it. And then you just yeah. never move on, you know? Yeah, I, that's why I, like you said, I, I think the first, what was the mark of the unicorn? That was the first one I used. And then I went to Cakewalk. Yeah, and me then I was too. With Cakewalk. I was with Cakewalk the rest of the time. And, and I think I stopped using it at, was it number six? Yeah. Because that's when I switched to Mac. Yeah. It's... And now I just, I don't record anybody else. I, you know what I use? What? Garage Band. What? Really? <laughs> oh, man. I have the other program too, but I just, for me personally, I, I, I play guitar, sing a little bit. I need what? I could probably get away with that Zoom just to record myself. Yeah, you I'm know, looking around my studio right now and just sitting in front of me here, and I'm going to pan the camera for you so you can see this. There's a 16-track uh, recorder right here. I've got a sampler in front of me, and then right in front of that is a 16-input M-Audio unit. And then down, you can't see it, but uh, there's a rack down here, and that rack actually has a four eight track interfaces on it so that i can hook in drums and everything else and then behind me there's actually a full trap set back here in the back i see as well that, as yeah. the bass and all my other stuff i've even got some 3d printers surrounding me right here that i was working with earlier and uh, you know i because i generate that much audio i do really need to have that multi-track function but before we dive off into the audio too far, one of the things yeah. I want to challenge everybody that's listening out there to, to give me suggestions on is I'm completely willing to try Linux, but I want to have a good video and audio editing solution for Linux. And don't give me one of those like, here's a comparable thing that's sort of like Ableton. I want a multi-track recording editing program that works with, you know, Firewire devices as well as USB devices, and I want to make sure that it also is able to edit video properly because, honestly, I have not seen a very good NLE for any of the Ubuntu or Red Hat or anything else. Any of the Linux offerings, I haven't seen a really good video editor. And they do have some, like, you know, draw cut here and move some stuff around, but they don't have anything that has all of the features, the transitions, the control, the color correction, anything else. So if you've got one guys, tell me, I I really want to know. I don't want to get hated on. (laughs) I don't see how it's going to happen because you don't have these big guys building that stuff. I mean, you. you... well, see, that's the thing though. In reality, you actually do because if you go into a lot of these post-production studios, they actually have a team of guys that are there building specialized programs and specialized pipelines that use Linux in the pipeline to handle their post-production workflow. And they're doing like rendering and all this other stuff. But this is like, I mean, it's not supercomputer, but it's borderline for an individual like me. It looks like a supercomputer and I can't get that high. And it's it's built specifically for their uses. Exactly. And it's proprietary. So it's not like they're going to be like, hey, Guess what? We developed this great tool that does this thing, and now we're gonna give it to everybody because you know. I'm sure. I'm sure that's all over Pixar. Yeah. I'd love to go to that place sometime. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I you know, I I think that's just because it's proprietary that it's grown up that way and it's stayed that way, and there aren't enough Linux users hardcore out there that are really concerned with video editing. They're more concerned with doing 
you know, server backend applications or, or handling like Apache stuff or whatever. They're not doing anything to do with video editing on a regular basis. Or if they are, they're maybe accessing like Amazon's S cloud and, you know, dumping video on there and bringing it back again or something like that. And the video editors that are able to build these kind of things don't have the time to do it because they're busy, they're busy, you know, Taking doing care the of editing. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the last thing I want to mention on the windows, uh, 10 release when the pricing does come out i don't recommend jumping over to it right away if you are a premiere user or you know any other editing sony vegas for example because it often takes a little bit of time for them to get all the drivers and everything else worked out but what i would say is if you have the opportunity go ahead and buy one of the uh, a license or a couple licenses for really cheap and hold on to them until they get everything worked out maybe wait six months Throw it on a computer that you're not using for your editing. Yeah, exactly. And test it out I there. Mean, I've been using the, uh, basically it's a developer's version. Before a new release of Windows comes out, you can go download a beta version of it where patches are released on a regular basis and you can play around with it. And I've been pretty happy with it. The experience is sort of like Windows 7, only with all of the tiles placed on the start menu as opposed to having a separate tile square screen type of deal. I basically, for the most part, I avoided Windows 8. I have a few tablets that run it, and with the exception of one computer in the house, nothing else has Windows 8 on it. Uh, And I've stayed with Windows 7, but I've liked the experience I've had with Windows 10 so much that I'm going to probably start buying licenses for that for at least two or three of my computers and then holding on to them until all the drivers and everything are issued for the regular hardware I use and start moving up. Ah, switch to Mac. Come to the dark side. I got too many PCs, man. (laughs) All right, I'm rolling down the list here, and it looks like CNN is signing an agreement for drone use with the FAA. If you guys have been following uh, drone use and the FAA regulations, you probably know that they're not expected to actually release any credible and enforceable stuff until probably 2017. I don't think the review process even ends till 2016, but this agreement signed with CNN is allowing them to test UAVs, which are even bigger drones and work in that kind of special space above 400 feet. Right now, a lot of drone users are working under the non-commercial use policy for model aircraft, and that limits you to 400 feet of altitude with your drone. But there are people that are kind of out there, I don't want to say illegally, but unlicensed (laughs) and probably in the gray territory running these uh, to do photography for real estate, to do aerial stuff for any number of applications for, you know, film work and what have you. Or they're even goofing off. And and, and that's what's going to be. That's the terrible thing is that. You know, I mean, if you can go over 400 feet with these things, you're going to. I know I would. (laughs) (laughs) I know. The first thing you think is like, I can go 400 feet? Whoa! (laughs) I'll be shooting it up as high as I can. And the terrible thing is is that um, people were using these over concerts, and they're not quite stable enough. And then I see them using them without the propeller guards and everything like that. And it's just – and I come from an era of remote control airplanes, with yep. gas engines on them. And, you know, when you get your finger caught in one of those, your finger's getting cut off. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, they're kind of dangerous. 
Well, um, and that brings me right to the next news article here. Uh, Petapixel posted a great video of a DJI drone, and uh, DJI or DJI has been known for their their takeoff and landing software that's built into the drone itself, so that you don't have to be as good of a pilot and it'll do it for you. Well, this is using the auto takeoff uh, controller, and it fails and actually rams the. Uh, drone right into the side of their garage and destroys this three thousand uh, dollar DJI unit. That's yeah, exactly. a great example of what are you asking for, guys? Do you really want to, you know, have well, these things many, flying around with people like me who don't know how to fly them in charge? You know, well, I, I know, I know, like I know, I think about ten guys that have these things. Yeah, two of them are real professional professionals. They have the the upper scale ones yeah but these other ones they're you know they're photographers like us and they're they're just trying them out and five of them have lost theirs in water because it just (laughs) takes off out of nowhere and goes and they they took the time because they're all friends of the other one the professional one so they take them and put make sure they're all you know signed up with their satellite gps thing yeah but it's just still there's that 10 percent error or even if they say they say two percent error, whatever error there is, they just take off. Yeah, and and that's what's stopping me from getting one because I was gonna go get one. You spend a thousand bucks on it, and by the time you get the, everything on it, it's probably about by the time you buy an extra battery because you know battery only lasts twenty minutes. You, know, yeah, you go max. out there for twenty Some minutes. Some of them are like ten or twelve minutes. Yeah, so so it's twenty on the new one on the new JGI is twenty minutes, and then the batteries are like one hundred and fifty bucks a pop. So you got to buy a few. You're two thousand bucks. Yep. And it goes into the water. Well, <laughs> you know? I'll tell you, if you're going to start with one of these things, the best way to go is actually to get one of the training simulators and to buy one of the remote controls because they sell the controllers that are uh, Bluetooth enabled so that you can use them with your computer for practice. You put a little module in it, you use the controller, the controller will set you back like 60 bucks. You practice on your computer first. Then once you feel comfortable and you've you've been doing this for a while and logged maybe 20 or 30 hours and you feel like you can really control it, go buy one of the sub $300 ones. They yeah, sell there's one, for, there's one for like 90 bucks yep. and it's got a camera in it and everything is, and it's really good. Exactly. And make sure it's not one of the ones that uses your iPad or your iPhone because you're never going to learn the manual dexterity you need to fly a big one. If you're just moving your thumb around on a flat screen, go get a unit that uses the real controller Hook up your real controller and then practice with that cheap one. They even sell kits on eBay for about 200 bucks. You can buy them with wood dowel holders for the motors. If you buy those, if you break the wood dowel, you go to the hardware store and you get another one. You'll go through some blades and that's fine. Don't fly them around your kids or your cats or your dogs or whatever. But then once you're good with that, then maybe think about spending $1,000 on one of these nicer units. They tell you that they have all these like fly home features and everything else. And that's great until it doesn't work. And then your drone is in the drink or your drone is like running into a building or chasing a child down the street. You know, it could be and, really and, bad. And I see that and I got to bring it up because everybody you see, whenever you see videos on YouTube, you see them and they're bringing it down towards their face and they're touching it with their finger Ugh. and it doesn't have the guards on it. Yep. And I'm just thinking, ah, ah. Well, and if you ever, I, I used to, uh, go down and every once in a while watch the hobby uh, helicopter flyers fly those around and the precision flyers it takes them you know several hundred hours to get really good at doing pre- precision flying with those rc helicopters and even then those guys they wrap 
I want to say five or six grand into some of the lower end models and it can go all the way up to 20 or 30,000. And those guys, they'll still wreck them and they have tons of experience. They fly the competitions for money and they do this on a regular basis. And yet they still manage to wreck these things. And those aren't quite as complicated to fly as these quadcopters where you're leaning forward and doing multiple gestures and stuff like that to get them to work correctly. So I maybe the complication is probably equal. I shouldn't say more complicated, but still those guys are professionals and you're going to go buy one tomorrow and try and fly it. Good luck around people. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the CNN, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's a good thing. It's bad thing. Whatever. The one thing that's cool though, about CNN is uh, they didn't just specify drones. They also went to UAVs, which some of the larger gas powered units, those are, three operators maybe four you usually have at least one just to fly it one running the camera and the gimbal system and then you might have somebody else you know doing remote monitoring of the systems on there like power gas levels or what have you and so those are even more advanced where it takes a team to run them and that's good because they're defining what's available and what people can actually do with it hopefully this will influence the faa to make some more reasonable choices when they're coming up with rulings for these well, I think I think that you know what it sounds horrible, and this is like Big Brother stuff, but I think that you should get a license. Yeah, that might be true. You or know, some kind of at least at least put some bucks out for it, and you take a test, something. Yeah, maybe if they have like a class where they draw the line and say, okay, you know, above this weight and this caliber or this power of motor or whatever, then you need to get a license, and then they have kind of like the scooter versus motorcycle initiative where you can go buy a 25 cc scooter in a lot of cities you can just drive it around but you can't take it on the interstate and get into trouble well maybe they could do the same thing with drones as they do with scooters where you get a scooter first to learn how to kind of balance and ride a motorized two-wheel device and then you go take a class or something like that and get your advanced license your motorcycle license so to speak and now you're flying a big boy And, and and i was against this license idea at first, because I didn't realize people were going to get so stupid with them. <laughs> you give somebody a cool <laughs> toy like this and it's... Uh, I, You know what? Like I said, I'd be the first one to take it up above 400 feet and I'd probably be flying it around everybody too. So oh, I can't man. really condemn them. All right. The next thing up on the news list here, and this is actually something you had me put in the rundown, is the soon to be released Olympus EM5 Mark II. Now, I'm not a huge uh, Olympus fan or owner, in fact, so I don't know much about this camera. What can you tell me? Well, you know, because we had brought up and we kind of got off it before about the image stabilization. Yeah. And and the Olympus has always had a really, really, really good stabilization, the five axis. I mean, on their newest one, they put three axis, back down to three axis. But they got five axis. This is supposed to be improved. Okay. And then this is going to have um, better video codecs. going to record at 24, 25, 30, and I think 60. Okay. Um, it's going to have improved five axis. It's going to um, it's going to do the XAVC codec. I'm oh, X, sure. XAVC uh, HD? S. Or yeah. S. So it's S. It's not going to have 4K. And then it's also going to have, I think I told you about this for, before, is that 40 megapixel um, picture. You know, 40, where, they're going to go with the 40 megapixel sensor on this guy? No, no. It's only got 16 megapixels, but the, the sensor shifts and takes like eight pictures. Oh, okay. It puts it together. It does what the Hasselblad does. It's basically like the Hasselblad where, where it, it takes a bunch of pictures and then it stitches them together to make one. 
so it has like a large photo stitching option that's available in it. It's kind of like that. I, I, I don't know exactly. I think it moves the sensor around and takes eight pictures and puts it together. Well, I was looking but, at the specs on this and it, it looks like they're, they're talking possibly uh, 240 FPS. Um, yeah. So maybe they're using that, like you said, as, as moving the sensor around maybe? I don't know. I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not an Olympus fan, so I don't know a ton about this particular camera, but that would be really cool if they could move the sensor around so fast as to gather that many images. Well, and then the tilt, it's going to have a flip out screen supposedly. Yeah. The only thing I'm not sure about and will be the deal breaker for me will be a mic input. If it has a mic input, if it doesn't, eh. But that, that 40 megapixel picture, I'm curious to see how that works because then you have a 60 megapixel camera, which is plenty enough for video and then if you you do want to take a still and use that, you have that ability on there, that's nice. Yeah. And the stabilization on these things, I mean, the Sony's nice. I have the Sony. You heard me, oh, the A7S is real. A7 Mark II is great. And it is. But I had an Olympus for a little while. At the CM5, I had it for a little while. And I just remember that being like almost like a gimbal smooth huh. it was just unbelievable i mean when you were walking it was just like you had a little wobbliness in the video but i think that they've overcome that with the am1 it just was a little it was that much better than the sony i don't know if it said anything to do with the sensor size or whatever but i'm kind of looking forward to this only downside not 4k but in my everyday usage i don't really use a lot of 4k anyways yeah that's true uh you know 60 megapixels you're right that i often find myself unless it's really low light just grabbing my GH4 to take stills, that's more than enough if it's headed to the web. And even if I'm going to blow something up, 60 megapixel is plenty. I've got the images right now. It looks like there's leaked photos of the EM5 too, and they're in the show notes here. And I'll post those when the cast goes live. But uh, it looks like from the EM5 to the Mark II, they've really done a good job with increasing the number of controls and the buttons and everything. Uh, looks like the EM5 didn't really have much in the way of dial selectors and buttons on the top, but I'm looking at the Mark II and it's got uh, two dials on top of each other in the front and then yeah. another two on top of each other in the back as well as a few more selections on the left-hand side. That's pretty nice. A flip-out screen, like you mentioned, that looks kind of cool. Um, it looks like it has a bunch of custom buttons. And then the other thing is it has that live bulb picture um, where you can actually – you can set – if you can set the camera to take a picture up and it, it'll actually uh, – it shows a picture coming together on the screen and then you can stop it where you want to. Oh, okay. So it's it just, it just got a lot of things that's good for a photographer. And now finally having some video, better codec and better option frame rates because before they were doing 30, 30 frames, which is great for, I guess, okay for YouTube, 30 frames per second. And it was eight, uh, 1080i. Okay. So you had to convert it and it was kind of de-interlace it. it. Yeah. So it, it, that was a problem. So now they're doing this and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a nice, compact, small camera. It'd be great just to carry around. Yeah, and honestly, I kind of like the look of it. That metal yeah. with the black finish that kind of gives it that uh, rangefinder sort of feel and look. It, it looks pretty sexy. I'm interested to see how this ends up being reviewed. Um, I wonder if this will suffer from the legendary reflective uh, focusing elements that were on the previous Olympus generation. I never 
had an Olympus camera in my possession to mess around with, but I heard many people mention that the translucent layer that was on the sensor that was used for focusing on one of the earlier Olympus cameras had some sort of ghosting effect or some sort of light issue. I, I, if, if we're talking, I'm thinking about the same thing. It was on the EM one when it first came out, it's the focusing things they had on the sensor. Okay. On some, somehow, you know, everybody finds these ways to find these things, you know, like the A7S, <laughs> you know, you had to really find it to get that, that light leak, but it was doing something where you would actually see lines. If you recorded a certain way at a certain time with a certain amount of light, you would actually see it from the sensor, but that huh. was, I think it was the, uh, EM one, the one above this. Oh, okay. I don't think okay. it was this one. Now this one does have this, uh, um, from what I understand, it's the same sensor as the previous model updated a little bit, but that's the only downside because, but it was still a good sensor. And these things right now, I mean, they can't compete with a full frame. That's true. But they can compete with an APS-C. Yeah. And if this thing, if it does a 40 megapixel picture, not that you're going to use it all the time, but now you have something you could do a product shot with if it works right. Well, a lot of people would argue that you could probably do a product shot with 16 megapixel depending yes. on your end destination. I'm just saying if, you need, if you need a lot of information in a picture, yeah. you know, or if you want to do a, a wall size print. So with even with the A7S, I did a 24 by 30, what is it? 24 by... Well, I did the big, I did yeah, the big, the big poster size. Yeah. And, and with a seven S it came out nice. Yeah. I, you I, know, I, honestly, unless you're doing something where you really need to do major cropping and really blow something up for not for everybody, but for a lot of people, 16 megapixels is plenty and 20 megapixel or 24 in the, in case of uh, Canon full frame cameras, that's, that's a lot to work with. You don't really need much more than that unless you're doing something extreme or you really need to crop in on something uh 40 no, megapixels available uh, or what is it 46 i think on the nikon d800 so no, it's, it's thir- 36 on oh is it 36 so 36 yeah. megapixel i mean anything bigger than that and you almost want to go medium format and yeah. then you know honestly you're probably going to rent instead of own because you're going to want glass to go along with it that has the amount of resolution it's so expensive yeah. or you work for somebody who does that sort of product photography and then they own all the equipment and you operate it but this one right here the cm52 it's it's an interesting camera i mean what's the price you know it's probably i'm gonna say it's gonna be around a thousand to twelve hundred that's not bad that's not bad at all the only thing that's going to be missing is 4k and then the only reason i'm excited about this is because you know if they put all this into this the next version of the EM1, which is actually a really nice camera to hold and everything, yeah, um, for photography, that might have the 4K. Although there again, I think they can already do 4K inside of it. I just don't think they're releasing that yet. Well, if this has the the amount of image stabilization that you're talking about, you might not want that combined with 4K for video. You yeah. start doing image stabilization, especially on something where you're using 4k worth of resolution, it starts to get a little, uh, wishy-washy. Yeah. I was playing around with the Panasonic 12 to 35 millimeter a while back. And when you turn the IS on in the, in the lens, it really kind of made things look smudgy when you were oh, really? using 4k. And that was one of the, 
one of the final straws. I mean, I, I didn't like that feels a lot more plasticky than the Olympus 12 to 40. And there's some other things that I didn't like about the, the Panasonic 12 to 35, but that whole kind of, it, it looked mushy and it seemed like it did this weird kind of, I don't want to say wobble with the image, but it was doing something, <laughs> something was going on that wasn't quite right. So when yeah. you shot 4k with that lens, it just, things looked a little bit uh, wishy-washy and soft and it's yeah. m- maybe this five uh, axis motion stabilization in the, uh, uh, M5 Mark II, maybe it's doing the same thing, and maybe you don't want to go to 4K for that reason. Yeah, maybe not. No, maybe not. I just looking forward to this too because I'm sorry, but Olympus has some nice lenses. They're yeah. not rated that high on DxO, but I don't really understand DxO whole rating, anyways. But... <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other ball of wax, man. <laughs> all right, moving on down into the discussion topics here. Um, I've got a few things on the list, and I'm not going to hit all of them. But one of the things that I was kind of daydreaming about when I was flying back from Pittsburgh here, it's actually Canon's STM lens system. Originally, this was kind of touted as the next move for uh, filmmakers. They were basically saying, look, you know, STM lenses are quieter. Even though ultrasonic, you can't hear them. They do generate a lot of noise. It's just above hearing frequencies, and it does end up getting into your video and making some weird things happen. Uh, STM was supposed to be the solution to that. And now what do we see in 2014? I've got some notes here. It says, uh, the 40 millimeter pancake, the 24 IS and the 34 or 35 millimeter IS. And then we haven't really seen a a ton of pro lenses with STM since then. There's two more. But is they're there? not really pro. There's, no, they're like consumer. They're like a F4 to F5.6 or yeah. F6.2 or something like that, you know? Well, the, the, the new kit for the 6D is going to have that 24 to 105 STM lens. But yeah. that's like you said, 3.5 to 5.6 or 4 to 5.6. Yeah, they're no, not. You don't see any. They're not really issuing very many good primes anymore in STM. And they're not going for higher end uh, L series glass with the STM driving system. Is this system going to die off? Are we going to see much more of this? I don't know. You know, it's, it, I'm curious in the same way because that 40 millimeter lens is a nice lens for yeah, photography. I liked it. And it's really small. It's, it's a great little handling lens. And even the fly-by-wire system wasn't too bad. Eh, I mean, eh. I say it wasn't too bad. I'm not, it's a hundred dollar <laughs> lens. I think it's like down to $85 yeah. for $85. Well, I mean, that's pretty decent i I just i want to hear people complain about the the flyby wire and the sony's and then i remember this one you're like when you're focusing the 40 millimeter you have to (laughs) yeah and it would do that weird thing too where um, it would come in and out on you yeah exactly so i mean it's it's good but you know they're perfect for that dual focus and um dual pixel and and you know i i would think that we're going to do more of these especially since you know that all the cameras from now on are going to have the dual pixel well, on there. They Canon was pretty hot on the whole uh, autofocus in video mode. And that was the other thing that the STM lenses were supposed to solve is that they could do full-time autofocus while you were filming. But most filmmakers aren't looking for full-time autofocus in that, you know, in that caliber of lens. They're usually, if they're going to get into uh, focusing, they're going to start, you know, manually focusing or measuring out. I know there's obviously there's reasons to go with autofocus, but 
I don't think these lenses offer enough of a value to make people move to this particular setup versus maybe one of like Canon still sells plenty of the FX. I believe it's the FX or XF uh, 305 and 105. Those are yeah. the all-in-one, I think they're like two-thirds inch or one-inch sensor. Uh, I believe it's two-thirds inch. But uh, the thing is, is that camera, you don't have to worry about it. It autofocuses just fine. And that's the sort of camera you'd want to go for if you're looking for full-time autofocus while you're just running around filming stuff. You you think that, I may think that. I've had those cameras. They're nice. Yeah. And actually have one over there. But the the new guys getting into this, everybody thinks DSLR. You got to do DSLR. It's all DSLR. Got to be able to change those lenses. And, and, and then they get into this and how many people don't know about pulling focus. You know, I mean, when I switched over, I only reason I knew about it is because originally I was a film guy that went to video that came back to film, yeah. you know, so, but they don't, and, and, and pulling focus, I mean, it takes a little time to learn. It's not the easiest thing. It's not the hardest thing. Uh, you know, it's just so much easier. For a lot of people, I try to talk them into, especially if they don't own any equipment and haven't really done this sort of thing before, I try to talk them into like the Sony RX10 or the Panasonic, uh, what is it, FX1000. Those, both of those are super zooms. They give you a really good range. It's down to 24 all the way up on the RX10. It's 24 to 200 equivalent, but it's an F2.8 across the board. And F2.8, your focus range ends up being something like, uh, F seven or F six, four or something like that on a one inch sensor. So even if you screw up a bit, it's really easy to get things in focus, you know, using that as a a focusing system, you have a lot of range, you have really decent low light performance and you have everything in sort of a point and shoot camera format. So you're still getting all the benefits and you're not jumping into a interchangeable lens thing. That RX, that RX 10 is a hell of a camera. Yeah. And I then, mean, that's, I mean, pro, pro, you know, guys going around shooting uh, journalists use that one. It, it's, that's more camera than most people will ever need. Yeah. And they've dropped the price down when it first came out. It was, it was sitting at 1300 or 1400. Now it's down to 900 and some change. And a lot of times you can find it on sale for like 899. And then the uh, Panasonic 1000 model, that guy is a, has even more reach. I mean, it's crazy. It's a, I think it's a 20, uh, 28 to 400 equivalent. So it's, it's it's a two, eight to four though. Yeah, it is a two, eight to four, but 400, that's like super zoom. I mean, and then it has like silent shooting mode and some other stuff. You could almost do like spy work. I I don't know. You know, not like, and and then throw it into a 4k and it pops it out. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and, and that that thing is capable of shooting 4K, whereas the RX10 isn't capable of shooting 4K. So with the Panasonic, that's like an $800 camera. It has a crazy zoom range. It's f2.8 wide open, and it doesn't start dropping down to the f4 range until you get out to like 100 equivalent or something like that. So, I mean, you're doing pretty good. And then having 400, I mean... You know, that's, well, okay. So one other thing to think about, and you know, if you're not, if you haven't bought a camera yet, and for some reason you've managed to fall into this podcast, if you have 400, that means that you can get a subject fairly close to the camera and then knock the complete background out of focus, even though it's F4 and then it's on a one inch cent or a two, uh, yeah, I believe that's a, a, a so micro four thirds. Is it a one inch, one inch or is it a micro it's, four it's thirds? One, 
No, it's a one inch sensor. Okay, so it's a one inch sensor. So with the one inch sensor, even though that puts every a lot of stuff into focus, if you can go to four hundred f four suddenly means uh, like you can still get really good shallow depth of field out of that camera. Whereas the Sony, I mean, at two hundred f two eight, it probably still isn't too shabby. But four hundred, man, that's. I don't yeah, know. That's like a sweet spot for me. I I kind of salivate over that camera. I haven't bought one because I don't have a good enough reason to. But <laughs> if I did, there would be one in my uh, bag tomorrow. I was when I was getting the LX100. I was kept jumping back between those two cameras, and then I bought the LX100, which I really, you know what? I gotta come out and say something. Don't buy it. <laughs> what are you disappointed with it? What's it's it's okay, but. <sighs> If it's like a fifth or sixth camera, yeah, I, I just you know I saw uh, uh, the a couple of reviews on it, and I can't think of the guy's name right now. EOS, whatever EOS, whatever, and he was talking about it, and he kind of pushed me over the board on it. And I bought it, and it's nice. You get a nice little four K on it. And you, uh, but it's just it's just not. Uh, does it really I, you know what? get the get the fc1000 yeah it's not it's not good enough the lens is nice you get a nice it's a 12 to it's a decent focal range i think it's 25 to set a 24 to 75 equivalent yeah but it's just you don't have a mic in and and you really people think oh well, i can record audio outside of the camera it's so nice to have it built in in fact, my gear of the week thing, when we talk about that later, is something I got for it. And now I'm just wish I wouldn't have spent the money on that almost because I think I'm going <laughs> to send it to you to throw on eBay because I don't even like throwing anything on eBay. I'll find somebody to give it to. You know, honestly, I'm going to just one side note on eBay here. Um, if you're selling stuff and you live in a populated area, the best way to sell something is actually Craigslist. And I know that like, Craigslist is shifty because people are coming over to your house. Maybe meet them somewhere like neutral, like the Starbucks. But eBay, the sales fees have gotten up to astronomical levels. I just sold off uh, some expensive gear, and I was doing the math on it. And I sold off my five uh, D, one of my five D Mark Threes, and yeah. the five D Mark Three. I sold it off for what uh, twenty? I think I got twenty five hundred out of it, which is really good. And I got that out of Craigslist. But if I would have taken that to eBay and gotten twenty five hundred out of it, I would have paid around $350 to eBay for that sale. So now instead of getting that, the final value cost and whatever it cost me to list it and everything else, now I'm getting, you know, 2,100 or 2,200 on the high side. That's a huge hit. And then on top of that, eBay, it seems like it doesn't quite keep up with the, the pricing of Craigslist. If you go to Craigslist and sell something, if it's a popular item, a lot of times you can get a little bit more like a premium out of it. I don't think I should have gotten $2,500 out of my 5D Mark III, but I did. And that's great. Yeah. And the person that bought it from me was like, thank God you were selling this because I didn't want to get something in the mail and have it be messed up from eBay. I wanted to go touch it in person, like talk to the guy who owned it, you know, find out what the uh, shutter count was and, and really get my hands on it. And so that was what ended up making it a premium value for them. I My experience, you know, uh, two years ago I sold – I had uh, three, I don't know if you remember these Casio FC1, FC1s, yeah. they're samplers. And I had a bunch of Juna uh, uh, Roland keyboards, and I sold a bunch of them. It was about $4,000, $5,000 worth of equipment. And like you said, I had to pay a ton of money out yep. to them. And then 
the first purchase was somebody that bought it but never sent the money. And then you had to wait that period to re-put it back on the thing. Ugh. So I was I was stuck for like three weeks to put it back on there. And I'm like, I was so pissy about it. Yeah. If you yeah, <laughs> eBay's wonderful and be very careful buying things from eBay, guys. But, I'm kind yeah. of bad about that. I buy a lot of stuff from eBay. <laughs> I've risked it on I would say like at least eight or nine of my lenses in my collection. And I've gotten away with it. I have yet to well, I I can't say that. I have been screwed a couple times on eBay, but not in the recent years. These are times way back in the day. I I spent a couple grand on a uh G uh what is it? well, whatever Canon's HD model was, that was still a DV recorder back way back in the day. Yeah. And um I ended up never seeing that, and that was some kind of Canadian scam that I got roped into. But now eBay has, even though you're right, it does suck. You have to wait like 30 days or or 90 days or whatever it is. But uh, they at least have protections built in where they refund you eventually. And eventually. Yeah. I, even the times where somebody has tried to really take advantage of me on eBay, I end up getting the money back eventually. It's just you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. It's a bit of a hassle. Well, the only thing I didn't like was, like I said, on this one, it wasn't I didn't send them the stuff. It was they never they never came through with the money to eBay and then I had to prove it to eBay that they didn't. And then eBay said, well, you got to give them two weeks to buy this stuff and then you can send it out, but they wouldn't let you put up anyways. Now a completely different discussion topic here. Um, I have a ton of M43 lenses. I've been collecting those for a while now and I've started kind of, because they're so small, I've been storing them in these little bags and they're really cheap. They're like three or four dollars. They're padded. They have a little pull tight top that fastens. And they're similar to the fancy bags that you used to get with L glass when you bought them. But they're a little bit more padded and a little bit more uh, comfortable for the lens. And they make them in multiple sizes. How do you store your micro four thirds lenses? Uh uh, my Morico Four Third lens. Okay, all my lenses, and this is probably the worst way to do it. Sony, Sony gives you. I'm holding one up to you right now. Yeah, the leather bags. They're like they give you the leather thin. bags, and and the ones that the lenses I don't use as much, like the 70 to 200. I don't quite use that as much, except when I'm photo, you know, doing photography. That lens goes in the bag, but I'm really bad. You're probably going to yell at me, and I hear from other people this is not the best place to put them. I have a couple Pelicans. Yeah, and and they're stored in the Pelicans. In fact, I'm I ordered this week new inserts for the Pelicans, the ones that are uh, cut out. They're yeah, the like, laser uh, cut units that are designed. The laser to foam the, cut. Yep. Yeah, so I ordered those. I I did those this week. They're expensive. They're about yeah. two hundred bucks a pop, but all my lenses are in two uh, sixteen fifty Pelicans. That's not a horrible way to go, but. Some people have had issues with that foam degrading over time and like getting into yeah. the little spots or, you know, getting sometimes even getting into the lens. And then sometimes if moisture, I, I know Pelicans are, are reasonably water resistant and yeah. usually it's not an issue, but if water does get in there and it gets on the foam, the foam can turn into this kind of like gummy nastiness that really like sticks into the weird spots of your lens and makes them gross. And the only reason I do it is because is I, they never are in there long enough without me going through them at least once a month. And that's probably where, although I am building a shelf in my little office here and it's going to be closed in and all the lenses are just going to go in there. My, my bigger lenses, my Canon lenses, 
because I have so many bags that I, I carry on a regular basis, I actually just close one of those bags up and store them in each of the individual compartments. And those are the, you know, the standard waterproof line cases. Um, yeah. Tamarack makes some good bags. Uh, some other manufacturers, Gorilla is a good one. Um, I store my, my big lenses in there, but because the M43 lenses are so small, I find myself wanting to stack them so that I can put multiple lenses in the same compartment because the, you know, I have like three primes and all three primes take up less than the total depth of one of those little areas. So these and padded that's cases. You, that's, and the, oh, I saw it on your site and they're wonderful for that because that's the beauty of the micro four thirds. You can throw like three lenses in a yep. bag and it's a no space. And, and like, um, okay, even on the Sony, even though they're a little bit smaller, they're not that much smaller. It's like one lens and a spot in the bag, one yep. lens and a spot in the bag where these with the micro four thirds, you can actually fit like three lenses in one spot. And so those little those little cases that you came up with on that website, I mean, yeah, people don't realize nice, how invaluable that site is. <laughs> um, and it's not me kissing butt here. It just you have no idea. I, I mean, there's a few guys. There's a few guys that you saved me so much money and my clients so much money through me. A couple of you guys out there have, and you're one of them. And 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 just some of these little thoughts that you come up with, these aren't things that people think of naturally, and. It's it's a good thing, you know those those little bags you came up with. Only thing is, where did you buy them off eBay? I couldn't find them on Amazon. I there's a on the site there's a link to them on Amazon. You have to oh that was it was it was yeah Amazon. you okay. have to so, go look around. Uh, there's they sell them in multiple sizes, and you do need to take a, a ruler and measure them out. Um, they sell a ninety millimeter depth and and whatever, and they go all the way up to full size if you have if you really want to put your Canon lenses in them. I don't put my Canon lenses in those, but for micro for thirds. And you can also buy them on eBay. They're under the same name, Matin, I believe, M-A-T-I-N. They're soft lens bags. They're really cheap. They're like $4 or $3 a bag. For that, I've been using a, several of these for more than a year now, and they've they've kind of got a little bit of like, you know, spots on them where they're starting to wear out a little bit. But a year for $3.99, I mean, that's nothing. That's not that big a deal. You can buy a whole set of these, use them, and if you're not too rough on them, I bet they'll last you two or three years easy. And they're really padded. They, they're they like a quarter inch to three-eighths of an inch thick, so they really have enough uh, oomph to them to like keep your lenses from banging together in the bag. And they're the good kind of – you can take them in the bag, see, because I – the other ones, I have to get one of them one time. I have their like cylinders. Yeah, and they kind of have like that weird sort of molded bottom that doesn't yeah. allow you to actually. Well, like... these are actually these are actually hard cylinders that you can store lenses in. Oh, okay. And and and, and that's what I had at one time. But those are perfect. You can throw them in a bag because you know what? I'm a bag junkie. I have one, two. I have like <laughs> I can see in this little room that I have. I see seven bags. Wow. Think Tank loves me, man. <laughs> and and you know it's always finding the perfect bag but with those things that you come up with those lenses you can use anything on this earth well and trey, Rad trey radcliffe he uses like some funky hippie bag he found yeah they make a few out of like socks and stuff like that or, or you know some kind of like crazy like alpaca sewn by you know native <laughs> hands or something like that i'm not that crazy but i when i traveled to pittsburgh i had to shoot some stuff in low light as well as in normal lighting. And I wanted to throw some primes in my bag and I wanted to throw a couple of zooms in. So I slapped the 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8 on my Panasonic GH4. I throw the uh, uh, 35 to 100 into one side of the bag and then I can fit three primes 
into the other side of the bag, an 85 equivalent, a 35 equivalent and a 50 equivalent. And those all fit into like one little section on the bag. And this is a mess, a male messenger bag. And then I was able to, th- you know, I vacuum sealed my clothes so they don't take up as much space. And then I was able to throw, uh, you know, my boom mic and a couple of bits of audio gear in my. You, you, you vacuum sealed your clothes? Yeah. Okay. So this is another, like, this isn't really a pro tip. This is, this is like ghetto tip. But when I'm traveling and I want to carry, like, uh, you know, a boom mic and some other stuff in there, and I want it to be protected, but I want to take up as little space as possible. I actually, they sell these bags and you can get them at Walmart. They're like uh, 12 bucks or 11 bucks and you put a vacuum on it and it vacuum seals your clothes. So if you throw your microphones and some of the other stuff, you know, in their normal protective case and you toss them in the middle of your clothes and then you vacuum seal it, your clothes create this like pressurized layer around your items in the middle. And as long as you don't give a darn about being in wrinkly clothes the whole time, which I normally don't, I... People don't bring me in because I look nice. They bring me in because I can do stuff. And so I throw it in there. Then I don't have to pay for, you know, checked baggages and I don't have to pay for the the heavier stuff. And then I don't have to worry about getting there and my equipment not being there because so many times I've been like, oh yeah, I'll just put this in this, you know, check bag and it'll be fine. And then the check bag goes one place and I go somewhere else and then I have to wait or I have to go rent something or I don't have exactly what I need and I have to compromise. So I've kind of worked it down to where I can travel with it. And if I do have to check something, I actually check my clothes and carry my equipment. Well, they're also waterproof this way. Yeah, that's true. They are. Um, the vacuum thing is not for everybody. Trust me, you don't want to get into that if like you need to dress up for an event or you need to wear a suit or something. A vacuum does oh, yeah. not work. I, what about vacuum sealing the lenses? That way, oh, okay, I, yeah, I don't know. That's getting a little bit <laughs> weird there. All right, one more thing on the discussion topics here, and then we will go to the pick of the week. I've got this really interesting, uh, small, smaller actually than a micro ATX motherboard. It's a 5.5-inch motherboard, and this thing actually supports up to 16 gig of RAM and some of Intel's higher-end G- or CPUs. And now that Intel's kind of moving to where they have kind of this APU setup where they have a graphics card and a processor all on the same chip, this thing is really tiny. And it's probably good enough for editing basic 1080p footage. And the price is down in the uh, three. Well, let me look at and make sure I'm saying this right. But I think it's down in like the $300 mark. Yeah. And it's 5.5 inches. This is small enough that you could mount it to the back of a monitor and then just have a really nice monitor and a little editing bay. This will support, um, it looks like it's got one SATA port so you can hook up an SSD to it. It's also got an M.2 port so you could put a 512 gig SSD on the M.2 port. It has Wi-Fi built in. It has uh, USB 3 so you have fast connections to everything. And it's pretty sexy. This isn't for everybody, but they were showing these off at um, at CES, and I was kind of impressed with them. I I almost pulled the trigger for no reason at all, just because I was like, "Look at this! Look at it! Yeah, it's adorable." <laughs> it's it's because you're a tech nerd, but I, they're nerd. I, I I I I hear you, you know. But to me, it's just called a Mac Mini. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and honestly, guys, this is just something I was excited about. In reality, this is going to be for a very specific audience. 
If you buy something like this, chances are you're not going to be doing editing on it. You're probably going to be using it to hook up to your television to play videos and you know maybe do some light gaming or something like that. This is but probably you know, not an editing solution. Yeah, but still ideas like this is how people come up with better stuff. So it's just nice. Yeah, and I'm... I'm really excited about some of the new because uh, micro ATX has kind of become a new form factor. You basically get a motherboard that has enough room for some hard drive space, a bunch of RAM, a really good CPU and one really good graphics card. And those things are actually a really practical way to edit. And some of these cases now, they come with a handle on the top, so you can just grab your case and go hook up to somebody's TV or monitor or whatever they have there at the location, and you have a pretty powerful little editing computer, and then you match this with a, a Drobo that has you know four drive slots that supports 20 gig or so worth, of, or five drive slots that supports 20 terabytes worth of, of space. Now you can bring major projects around with you and actually go from place to place with a full-fledged editing system and a full-fledged project with all kinds of stuff and still work pretty conveniently from place to place without suffering the, the sort of like compact issues that you deal with when you're using a laptop. Yeah. I don't uh, know. You know. Those are kind of weird things for PC people. They're probably not for Mac. Have you have you used the new uh, the the iPad version the Surface? Uh, are you mean the Microsoft Surface? Yeah, the Microsoft Surface, the brand new one that has like a it's like a dual core or quad core processor in it. I have a Microsoft Surface Two upstairs, and I do use that tablet occasionally. The reason I actually bought that was for the pin input. Uh, it has really good response for drawing. And can you can you edit on it light editing? Yes, you can. Um, the one I have only has 128 gig drive and one USB port, so you're limited. Honestly, what I use it for is actually rotoscope. If I need to like draw something out, I can usually sketch it faster than I can try and do autocorrect and then you know uh, highlight something with my mouse in in After Effects. So if I just have a clip where I need to like crop something out really quick, I drop the clip onto the tablet. And then I use my pen to draw around it and clean up the edges. And then I export it back out. And then I do the rest of the work on my regular computer. Yeah, that, that, I tell you right there, that was uh, something I was interested in buying. But my wife bought me an iPad, the new iPad, so I didn't get one. Because it was, it was pretty interesting. I could use Premiere on there, I understand. Yeah, and there's a lot of good tablet offerings. I when I'm recording music or doing something fairly low CPU intensive, I have a smaller tablet, and I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really need multiple tablets. I'm probably going to sell off my Surface too because I don't use it very much anymore. Yeah. I bought it for a specific project, but um, I have a a Lenovo ThinkPad eight eight inch, and that's a quad core um, processor with uh, four gigs of RAM and 128 gig SSD. And it has a 1080p display, and it's like seven and a half inches. So it's very small. It can handle quite a bit of processing power. So you can do a little bit of editing. I usually use it because it's so small, I can throw it in with my camera bag and do basic photo editing on it. And then I have one of these uh, Microsoft Arc uh, mice. And the Arc mice, I don't have one in front of me, otherwise I'd show it to you. But it's basically, it lays flat. It's about... a. Uh, it's bigger than a quarter inch, like half inch thick when it's laying flat. And then it's got kind of that snap bracelet effect and it pops in the middle and folds into a full size mouse. 
So you can throw that and the tablet itself into a little tiny bag. And then that slides into the front flap compartment on my travel camera bag. And so if I just need to hook onto the camera really quick and do some uh, photo editing, I can grab that. And then I've got an extra 128 gig micro SD card in there for uh, storing more than just a little bit of of photography. And then I can clean up photos on the fly while I'm riding around. And it's got like a five hour battery life, six hour battery life. And it gives me all the options of a full-fledged Windows computer in this really tiny portable package. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only reason I brought that up because you were talking about the small form factor. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, no I worries. There. That's yeah, a... I, I, I was looking at those things and then um, because, you know, I, have you tried the Lightroom for yeah. the – I've used – oh, now, no, so I haven't um, used the Lightroom uh, specifically mobile. for mobile yet. I've only used the Lightroom on that particular tablet, and it's a full-fledged version of Lightroom. The only issue I ran into is because it's such a high-resolution monitor on such a small form factor, I actually ended up having to use a mouse with it on a regular basis because my fingers are too fat to push some of the buttons on the screen. And yeah. so I know what I'm trying to do, but I can't do it. With the mouse, it's small enough that I can scroll over and click on stuff. So when I'm doing photo editing and stuff, I still tend to use a mouse unless I'm just pinching to zoom or something like that. I'm interested to try the mobile. I pay for my Adobe subscription, but... I haven't taken advantage of 100% of the things that are available. I, I, I'm, I, ha, I only used it a few times. It's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. It's pretty much like uh, Snapseed. Okay. I think it was, I think it was like Snapseed. I don't know if they, I see your Android, so I don't know what's available on there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if the uh, cloud app is available for Android. I know it is now they just released it. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. I might have to give it a try. I've got a, a Nexus seven tablet, the, the second generation laying around somewhere. I could probably pick that up and give it a run. That might be something I do down the road and maybe I'll post an article on it or something like that, but, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, one last thing. Uh, well, before we leave on to the pick of the day or leave the discussion topics, um, I did finally get in that $85, $89 wireless system. Uh, it just showed up and I was checking the mail and it looks like I got a lav mic. I, I forget the name of the company, but there, there was a sale on them. They are normally like $100 lavs and they were down to like 50 bucks or 45 bucks. So I'm going to be testing that out later on in the week, and that should be pretty interesting to see how the audio sounds with that super cheap. Uh, yep, that's the that's the brand right there, Aspen Mics. I bought one of those because they were like thirty or forty bucks, and they're normally like seventy or eighty. Uh, uh, he, uh, for those of you, because this is audio, obviously we kind of share an extra bit. Uh, Richard was lifting up and showing me the microphone that I had actually ordered. Did you uh, swing for the monoprice uh, cheapo uh, wireless unit as well? Uh, I got the, I got the, I just, I just, uh, I bought the stereo one just to try it out yeah. with the iPad, not the iPhone connector. Okay. The, the TT, was it T? Yeah. TRRS tip ring, T-R-R-S. ring sleeve. Yeah. Tip ring, ring, ring sleeve. Because um, actually I had bought this smart lab from Rode. Yeah. And it was okay, a little bit of noise. Smart Lav Plus, nice. Um, it's really clean, actually. And then this is actually for $35 on their site right now, $39, I think it is, with this. It's on sale still. Um, the Aspen mic, the Lavalier. It's not bad at all. If you're going to record separate audio through an iPhone or, or an Android phone, it's really, really not that bad. Now, how, how big is the Lav? 
because that was one of the things you run into with uh, some of these cheaper lav units is that it has a really big lav that's hard to hide. It's about the size of a. Uh, He's showing me right now, guys. I have one upstairs. Sennheiser. I haven't opened up. I, I but... think it's. A, I think it's about the size of a Sennheiser. It's yeah. not real big. It's 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 actually kind of small. It's not as small as a Countryman. Okay, yeah, those Countrymen though, those are like square and really thin. Well, no, that's the square one. They also have the other one that's really small too. But it's 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 about the size of a. Eh, it's about the size of my Sony's okay. and the Sennheiser. It's about the roughly the same size. It's not real big. Um, and it's not that bad. I mean, honestly, if you, if you're, somebody's new, this is, this is a good option. This for the, the road, uh, plus huh. smart lab plus, but, and, and get that road app. It's nice. Yeah. I'll definitely well. look into that guy. I have one. It came in the mail. I just haven't opened it up yet. I got a bunch of stuff while I was in Pittsburgh, so I'm still kind of digging through everything. But and if uh, you get the Aspen mic with the T T tip ring ring sleeve on yep. it. It comes with a little adapter that allows you to plug your headphone into one side, the mic into the other, so then you can actually even check your audio as you're recording. Yeah, that's a cool-looking adapter. I, the one I ordered has the adapter with it, so I'm I'm interested to see how that that goes. Um, I also don't know if the um, if the Monoprice unit does actually, in fact, provide power because the Aspen, as well as most of the nicer lav mics, require a a volt or two coming from the unit in order for them to operate. The, and the that seems like it might be case. Yeah. The stereo one has a little bit more noise. Supposedly I didn't order the mono one. I should have to try them both out, but you're more of an audio guy. Well, you're more of an audio guy than I am. So I can't wait to see on dsrfilmnoob.com <laughs> the, uh, the thing on it. You know, this is a DSLR film noob podcast. You don't have to plug this site. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving hey, on. Hey, I love this site. You don't realize how great it is. Oh, well, thanks, man. Uh, moving on to the last thing on our list here. We got the pick of the day. Um, I'll let you go ahead and go first because it looks like you got a couple things you were kind of playing I, around I, you with. Know what? I, I was going to I was gonna make it was the Garus. Um, if, if somebody is wise enough to not take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, if somebody buys the LX100, there's one bad thing about the LX100. The Panasonic LX100. Uh, it, you can't use a uh, adapter on the bottom. Uh, oh, like a the, regular cold shoe or plate or a PL the, plate. The, adap the, the adapter plate, you know, the one you put on the bottom of the camera to click onto the thing. I can't. I can't. Yeah, the quick release plate. Quick release plate. There we go. Sorry okay. about that. Um, but if you buy the Garis uh, half body. It connects to the bottom and then moves that over, and it has an opening for the battery, so you can pop the battery out. Okay. And you can actually put a quick release on it. So as is the camera, you cannot put any kind of quick release whatsoever on it and be able to take the battery out of the, the camera. With the new Gariz leather thing, it's 100 bucks. It's kind of worth it for a lot of people because you'll be able to have a quick release and be able to take the battery out without having to take the quick release off every time. And that's really a pain in the butt on a lot of cameras. Um, so I was looking at that because I was thinking of getting that Nebulizer 6000. I yeah. figured I could snap it on and off easily and not have to set it up every single time and be able to pop that battery off. That was one thing. But the other thing is, the biggest one is, I think even more so, I used to like all the Go, um, not the GoPro, the Gorilla Pods. Okay, yeah, I have a couple of those. And... They're useful, but they're not quite as useful as you think they're going to be. 
everything looks like, oh, I got to have this. I'll need this. I'll need this. I can put it on this, this pole. And then you put it on there and then it falls down. Your lens goes crashing onto the floor. So <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest those, you know, the smaller ones are nice, but I got this, um, Manfrotto. It's a table tripod and the number is, it's the MP, MTP IXIB. And it's a little, a little tripod mount and it's got four feet, but it also folds up and it can become a pistol grip. Okay. And the head on it, you push a button and it goes, but it actually is strong enough to hold a 5D3 with a 24 to uh, 70 okay. lens on it. And uh, the beauty of these things is, is that you have it, you can use it anywhere. And then I just found the other day, it slides nicely along a table. Oh, really? So you can even get a little bit of like uh... a, a slide. So if there's any foodies out there, go and take pictures at a restaurant of their food things like that. Huh. You can take little videos and make a little slider out of it. I've actually used it a few times to do that. And it's just a nice little tripod. So you have a little tripod, a tabletop tripod. You have a pistol grip okay. and a quasi slider built into one <laughs> <laughs> That's for, 29 a... bucks. for 29 bucks. I think it's 29 bucks. And you get them in white, black, and gray. Huh. I like a lot of what Manfrotto has to offer, especially their smaller stuff. Uh, the one thing I will mention about the gorilla pods, I've never risked using a heavy camera on mine. Uh, I do have the super advanced, whatever version that's supposed to be able to hold like 18 pounds. I would never put 18 pounds on that thing. But what I use it for quite a bit actually is microphone placement. If, um, I don't have someone running a boom and I want to hide a microphone on a table leg or something like that close to the people that are in a room or whatever. It's kind of my extra boom arm operator. I wrap it around something that's close by or, uh, you know, kind of stick it through a handle or something like that. And then put a boom mic on it and aim it in the right direction. And then just listen on my headphones to make sure I'm good to go. Then I can move around a little bit and it's plenty. The heavy duty one, I would say was plenty for a point and shoot camera. I know on their site, they always show like a full size rig on that thing, but I don't trust it. And I'm with you on that one. Like I would never put my 5d Mark three on there. Even a T2I is pushing it for me. They it has some good grip to it, but yeah, it's a freaking flexible arm. What do you expect? It's not going to hold on to everything. Yeah, it's, you know, and I made the mistake, and I'm sorry, I don't know if you heard my phone going off there. I apologize. Oh, no, I did not. I thought I heard it turned off. Um, I I agree with you. They're great for that. They're even good for lighting. Like I yeah. showed you earlier, these um, R300s from F&V, wonderful little lights, and they're great for holding that. But I did make the mistake of the A7R and the 7200. And I put it over one of those metal baluster sidewall poles and I tied it around there and it looked real good and strong. And I left it for a second. It flipped. The oh, lens no. came off the camera and hit the ground. And the only thing that was damaged was my lens, per, uh, the, the clear, the clear lens thing. The lens protector, your UV filter. Yeah. Which I never have on any other lens, <laughs> <laughs> but I had it on there and it bent the front of that. I took it off, put a new one on, and the lens is in great condition. But I have, you know, there's one thing you can talk about sometime. I have good uh, insurance and protection yeah, on all the lenses. I, I, I have, 
I think I'm using Mac now, Mac something or other, Mac, M-A-C-K. And uh, if, if it, I mean, I've used it on one lens that got hit by a car. Ugh. And they replaced the whole lens. Oh, nice. I've got mine on, well, insurance is another topic. We'll save yeah. that for another day. Um, I'm going to go with my pick of the week, though. And for those of you who've been following my uh, continuing uh, move towards the podcast, I started out with an Audio-Technica 4073 microphone. And right now, I'm actually testing out. I finally got one in. I ordered it from Amazon. It was a rough go. They sent me the Rode Procaster with the arm and all of that for a really decent price. It was like 280 or $300, but it showed up with no microphone. So I had to send it back and go through the whole exchange issue and everything. But now I finally got one. And honestly, I'm kind of glad I invested in this. It's really good at just picking up the audio in front of it. And you're listening to this podcast now. So this entire time I've been talking on the Rode Procaster and I can snap my fingers back and off and around. And I don't know, you'll probably be able to hear that a little bit, but here's in front of the mic. And as I move away and off to the sides, it really gets quiet. And then it comes back again. As soon as you get in front of the mic, this does a really good job of isolating just what's in front of it and kind of keeping all the background noise out of the audio path. I've had my dogs, they've wandered in and wandered out a few times during this cast. Um, there's been a train that's driven by the studio a few times. And Honestly, I haven't seen any of it on the audio level meters, and I'm guessing, Richard, you haven't heard any of it I, I haven't heard it. All I know is I'm watching on this video, and I'm salivating on one of those mics myself. Yeah, and I didn't think at first that the the whole adjustment arm thing or the stand would be that useful, but after using it for the entire show, it's really nice that I can keep the mic exactly where I want it. It's really well balanced. The springs aren't noisy at all, and the little basically shock mount for the mic does a really good job of holding it into place. It is an XLR mic. So if you don't have something that's designed for XLR setup, they do make a USB version. And a couple of the guys I've done the podcast with have used it and theirs sounded pretty decent as well. This thing is pretty nice and it's not as hot as the Audio-Technica 4073 that I was using. That is a boom mic and I actually had it um, roughly three feet away from me when I was talking because that's how sensitive that particular mic is. It's probably better to have a non-condenser microphone, uh, dynamic mic, I believe is the proper term, but uh, having a dynamic mic makes it a lot easier for you to talk into it without picking anything up around it. And the Rode Procaster is often compared to uh, Healy, I believe, makes one, and ElectroVoice yeah, also makes a very popular uh, broadcast mic. I think uh, these Australian guys are onto something with this particular model. I, I'm not 100% sold on all of Rhodes products, but the Procaster, it sounds pretty decent. And honestly, I have a kind of nasally voice. It's, it's just the nature of, of my voice. And the Procaster seems to kind of edge off of that uh, nasally sound a little bit and make me sound almost a little bit throatier and a little bit lower in tone so i think that's kind of a, a bonus as well hey I, I listened to it before i had my 200 hour headphones on and now i got my little cheap ones on and it sounds great through there i'm gonna have to try out the uh I'm, I'm gonna go with the usb version i'm gonna try out the usb version and maybe next time we'll talk we'll see how it works well next week on dslrfilmnoob.com guys uh, look forward to that testing of the 
mono price microphone set. I'll be doing some audio comparisons as well as testing out that Aspen mic to see how that's set up. So there'll be more on that. Also, I've got some more audio tests I'm going to be doing with this Procaster that I've got right in front of me now, as well as some monitor stuff. I believe I've got a few things in from Aperture that I'll be messing around with. So stay tuned for all that, and I will see you next week on the cast. All right, guys, I'm back here with uh, Rich, and we're kind of getting into the extra after show business here. And he was just asking me about memory card, or actually uh, USB drives. And the one he mentioned, um, the PNY, they sell those in a 128 gig, a 256 gig, a 64 gig, and I believe a 32 gig. And they're really stinking affordable. Uh, what's the price on those right now? Is it like I, I saw it on B and H for eighty nine dollars, and if you go over to Best Buy, they're eighty five. But B and H, you don't, you know, it's actually cheaper by the time you get it said and done. But it's supposed to read at one hundred and fifty five yep. and write at one thirty five. And I was just curious if you had ever tried one because at one thirty five, that's 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 standard that's, hard drive speed. That's you uh, could you could do editing right off of that. Yeah. I was just. And I do actually, um, I have several of them. I have a 256 gig as well as 128 gig version. I have had a couple of them die on me though. So keep that in mind. They're really good with their warranty. The one that died, well, two that died, actually, I've had six of them total and two have died. And the two that have died, I was able to just exchange them. Uh, they sent me a new one within a week of when I sent it back. So it was really awesome. And they got me a new one really fast. And that's great, especially considering the price. Those were the 128 gig models. And I did yeah. buy those to be fair. I bought those quite a while ago. They have not a lifetime warranty, but I believe it's like a three or five year warranty on them. And if you say, you know, especially if you buy them from like B and H or Amazon, where you have a receipt, then all it is, is, you know, turning in the information from the receipt to them, filling out a little form and then mailing it in. And that's it. And they send you a brand new one. Uh, I abused mine quite a bit. I edited it off of them. I used them to turn over footage to people as backups and stuff like that. And honestly, the read speeds are really good on those. I got yeah. impressive speeds out of them. And the write speeds aren't too shabby either. I was averaging 60 to 80 meg writes to those. So I could... I could drop, you know, 20 or 30 gigs from a project onto that without any issue. And it wasn't, you know, everybody has that friend that still has a computer with USB two on it. And they're like, yeah, I copied over 80 gigs and it took me like a day. Well, this is none of that, man. You can, you can fill these up really fast. They're really good for read speeds and especially for big stuff like uh, video footage. They're not good if you're reading small files. So if you have a bunch of really tiny files, um, their 4K read and write speeds, which is a benchmark they often use for uh, SSDs and things like that, they're not super fast when it comes down to tiny items. But for larger files like video files, the read speeds are, are fast enough that you could easily edit off of these. You can watch movies, you can playback stuff, you can even edit a few tracks of, of audio off of them without much issue. And I have because a couple of them. I was just because I was looking at those to take with me versus carrying around my drives 
I mean, because it would just save a lot of room versus a drive that's, you know, five by three by five. Well, the other thing you might want to look at, um, they're starting to be released by Samsung, and they're basically a 512 gig SSD with a USB 3 port, and they're powered off a USB 3. And the drive is, it's bigger, obviously, than you're going to get with these thumb drives, but it's even faster. It basically saturates uh, your USB 3 ports. So it's the maximum amount of write and read speeds that you can obtain with that particular connector. So you're talking like three or four times faster than the thumb drives, and they're the Samsung... 840 um, or 850 Evo inside of these drives and they're in like a thin aluminum case. Um, I talked about them on the previous podcast and actually I might even be able to uh, dig up the name well, I, for it. I was looking at the Transcend 512. It's 229 for those. Yeah, those aren't too bad either. They're, they, they're supposed to read uh, like 400 and write at 350, 360. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just thought those other, those USBs, because then if I wanted to hand one off to somebody for 80 bucks, yeah. well, it's not a big deal. The 128 gig ones, I think they're down to like 40 some dollars or yeah, maybe. Yeah, 45, something like that. Yeah, so those, I've actually given those to people when it's like, okay, I'm done with your project. Give me $45 and there here you go. go. And that's, you know, 128 gig. That's not the size of every project, but for smaller projects, 128 gig is more than sufficient to handle everything you need. And if you're handing over a lot of video files and stuff, I mean, that's still quite a bit of footage. Yeah. I just, you know, because when, when you start getting into these hard drives, uh, at one time you couldn't do over 225 and use your... Well, I think if you have... Bus- be bus powered, right? Oh. Now they've. Oh yes, yes, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah the the older spinning hard drives you couldn't power them off of the USB port alone. You had to use an external okay. uh, power pack or you know wall ward or something like that to power them. Uh, these new units are SSD and they use like a quarter watt at idle and maybe two to five watts at full bore which is more uh, or so little power that your USB port can take care of no so, problem. So then you, you can just buy some cases and then buy the Samsung things to throw in there, huh? Well, the um, the USB or well, okay, so there's two ways to For do USB it. USB 3. Yeah, yeah the, you can buy a USB 3 enclosure and throw in a, a regular SSD, but that's a little bit bigger. You're you're going to still have the depth of your regular laptop hard okay, drive. Okay, you're talking about it like the M the M ones. Yeah. M- th- no, this isn't an M one, but um um Samsung actually sells them and I'm typing into the the show notes here. Let me dig in real quick and I'll find it for you. Uh yeah. the the Samsung unit is a SSD that's been crammed down to the smallest form factor it can and then they just put it inside of an aluminum case. So the aluminum case is like a nice form factor with just a USB 3 port at the end. And you plug it in and then you use that guy instead of using um, a full-size enclosure with an SSD inside. And let me see. I'm scrolling down here. Hold on a second. There's – oh, here it goes. Okay, so it is – yeah, they announced them at CES. It's an 850 Evo that's been shrunk down into an aluminum case. And, oh, it's the feather thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put the link in the chat for you so you can – uh, click on it and check it out. But uh, it looks like they're calling them 
the SSD T1 portable USB 3.0 drive. And the T1 is looks like the major label. They come in a 500 gig as well as a one terabyte and 256 gig flavor. You can put 100% encryption, uh, uh, 256-bit encryption on them if you want to so that your data is protected if you're moving something you know, kind of shifty. And if you click on that link and look at the pictures, you can see that the drive is only about as thick as the USB cable that goes to it. And yeah. it's it's about half the width or it's less. Just about the, it looks about the size of those transcends. Yeah. It, the size of the appliance card. Yep, the M.2 cards. It's a, like that, and they have them on uh, B&H. Put a link on the B&H. <laughs> the, uh, put a link on the B&H from your site, damn it. I'll buy them through your link. Put the link on there, damn oh, it. Oh, man, you're making me work for this. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, those drives, they're, they're starting to be released. The Transcend drives are also another option, and those are uh, M.2 drives in an enclosure. And they're all really good options, especially if you're going to just edit off of them. If you're going to give them away, I wouldn't give these away because they're freaking... They're pricey. I mean, you're talking 200 bucks for the uh, 512 gig. I mean, that's not super expensive, but that's getting into the range where you don't just hand them off to somebody. The, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it looks like the 250 gig model is about $180. Yep. So that's not really hand-offable, but the editing speeds on here, we're talking, uh, it looks like the reported speeds are in the 400 meg up and down for reads and writes. So that's roughly three and a half times or three times what you're getting out of those thumb drives. So the thumb drives, like if you just want regular hard drive speed out of them, I mean, that's still pretty decent. Uh, 135 meg or 140 meg, that's that's enough to add it off of. And for 45 bucks, hell, just, you know, hand them off to the next guy or give them away. Um, you know, I saw these at the show and I didn't think that they're going to be releasing these so quickly. It looks like... Um, they're already talking about uh, actual store shelves at first quarter of 2015. So, I mean, first quarter, that's February, yeah. March range. It looks like they had full-fledged versions of them basically on the show floor. So, I don't know about pre-order. I'd have to look into that a little bit more. But um, if, I'm a pre-order uh, one right now. Yeah. Oh, as soon as you put the link up on your site. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> But I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at uh, Samsung's site right now, and and I think, yeah, it says first quarter, so so I think that's they're when the, when they're, they're out. B and H. Oh, are they already like they're already on B and H the Samsung T ones? Now you got me looking. Yeah. And I kind of want to on B and H. Yeah, oh. and, and you know what? It's a nice thing here. Yeah, one seventy nine for the two fifty gig, uh, one terabyte for five ninety nine. That's a little pricey, but for the form factor. Uh, nope. you know, yeah, because the SSD itself is about four eighty five to four ninety nine. So you're paying basically a hundred bucks to get it in a tiny enclosure, as opposed to getting just the drive itself. So it, you know, when you're flying and you don't have to carry around, this stuff yep. is invaluable. Yeah, <laughs> and the other, well, okay, so one more storage solution that's out there that I've kind of been using more than I thought it would. Uh, BitTorrent Sync is is actually a pretty cool thing. Um, basically, what it allows you to do is to set up a folder on any computer that's attached to the internet, and then it gives you a hash code, and you can email the hash code to somebody or to yourself, and they have direct access to that file to download and to all the updates to that file on your computer. 
So where that is handy is if you're doing revisions of something and they want to listen to the new version or they want to look at the new version or whatever, there is the option, of course, to go to like uh, YouTube or something like that. And so you could do that. But with this, it basically is updating it on the fly on that drive. And I don't use it as much for sharing. I mean, I do do that. But the biggest thing for me is, oh, well, I can't find this asset that I was working on at home, but I know it's on my BitTorrent sync um, folder. So I can just log into that really quick, download it from my computer on the network at my home or my office and get it on the fly somewhere else. So you're working on something and you're like, oh man, I wish I had this logo that somebody designed for me, or I wish I had this like short video clip that was the intro segment for something. You can go on there and even on slow network, you can download it while you're sleeping and have it in the morning to continue working yeah. on your project or your edit. So that's something to look into as like the poor man's remote storage. I, I pay for pretty high speed internet at my at my um, studio. I have uh, it's not Google Fiber or anything, but it's uh, no. it's ten megs up and um, sixty megs down. So. I pay a substantial amount for that, and I like to take advantage of it on a regular basis, and BitTorrent that, Sync is one of the ways to do that. I've been complaining. I, I get 150 down. Jesus. And and it, depending on the time of the day, they guarantee 25, but I've been averaging about 47 up. Man, that is nice. And, and I'm waiting for the Fios to come here because supposedly it's like double that. Yeah. I um I almost moved to Kansas City when, when Google Fiber – hit because i was like oh you know gigabit up and down wow that would be so nice i mean you know i mean i used to have like 10 up and and 10 up's nice but man when you're trying to put something up on vimeo or youtube or even to any type of thing i'm throwing something on a smug mug for a client or whatever it is so nice to be on that 47 up yeah i i originally was only able to get 10 down and one up here and one up you put up a a video of any size and you just wait and wait it was hours yeah and going to be two hours right yeah going to 10 meg up was like oh it's night and day it's so nice i was so happy about it and before that i was actually because the upload speed on my cell phone internet was faster than my landline internet i was using my cell phone to upload videos when I needed to or upload project assets when I needed to, to, to Google drive or whatever, that sucks. Um, I am so glad that I'm at 10 and I hope at some point in the future, they'll offer a higher rate. I will pay for it. I, I, I pay, I think I pay, I don't know. I think it's 75 or 80 bucks a month for, and I actually have two internet connections here. So I pay 75 or 80 for my 60, 10, and then I have a 15 and one for emergencies that I still pay like $19 a month for, because you never know when like everything else goes wrong and you have that extra internet connection. I still have my exactly. cell phone. So that's a thing as well, but I don't know. I still like feel like it's worth the extra 20 bucks. And then on top of that, if I'm doing something like this and my wife wants to watch Netflix, sometimes Netflix can really be a band, ho- a bandwidth. Oh, hog. Yeah. oh yeah. Netflix. And- Apple TV. Oh my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> and my, um, my 60 down, uh, 10 up is on cable. So when other businesses in the area start dinking around or using a lot, 
they tell you this is what it is, but in reality, like it's varying back and forth. I've seen it as low as like 20 meg down and, and five meg up and as high as like 75 down. So, you know, it's really dependent on the usage in the area. And that's why having dual internet connections at the house has been really a thing for me. I have one with a cable and I have the big ones with the cable that's 150 down yep. up. And then I have the uh, AT&T as a backup as well. Yeah. And I'm actually lucky because right now uh, we had an ice storm here while I was gone and the 6010 uh, water got into the cable junction box and broke it out. So that one's actually down right now and I'm actually using my 10-1 for this. So if I'm pixelating at all, that's most likely what's going on. I haven't seen it on mine at all. That is one nice thing uh, about uh, DSL is that your whatever they tell you is what you get. It's not like cable where it kind of like bounces back and forth. So, yeah, and I, I'm I'm on a wireless right now. I didn't even plug in wired, and I'm way far out of the <laughs> away from. Uh, I'm way at the other end of the house. This is the office on the other side of the house. <laughs> And I took another wireless out of here and the hub out of here because I wasn't using the office because I'm still fixing it up. As you see from uh, here, you can see my guitars. Yeah, I think no one else can see it, but I can see it. He's got guitars on the wall. He's got some cool like uh, film reels in the background and some movie ticket type things. It's pretty sexy, actually. I got I got Michael Jordan back there. I don't know if he's copyrighted, so we won't show him. Huh? Yeah, uh, my <laughs> studio. Well. Yeah, this doesn't help anybody who's listening to this, but you can see this mess like everywhere. Yeah, around. see, that's what mine—that's what mine looks like on the other side too. So I, I just didn't show you that. <laughs> yeah, my I well, my location, my studio is uh, two thousand and some change square feet, and it's just a big square open box. And then my I live in the upstairs portion of the business that I own, and that upstairs area is another. Uh, 2000 and some change and that's my condo so i have a pretty big place but it's most, sweet yeah that's half of it's used for, for the you know film production and video and audio production so and having a big box means that you have to build false walls and move stuff around that's a whole nother topic another, anyway another topic. on the we'll storage thing we'll, we'll let it go at that those those uh pny um 256 gig and 128 gig uh thumb drives are really nice uh, if you look on DSLRFilmNoob.com, there's, I did an article on it a while back when those first came out and I tested those. Also, if you look on the reviews on Amazon, you'll probably find a couple of my reviews up, my video reviews. They're sexy little drives, especially for $45. Well worth yeah. investing. If you just need something to hand off that if you lose it, you don't care about it. Just make sure you back them up because I have, I have burned up a couple of them and that was heavy writes and reads to those on a regular basis. So you know, the onus is probably on me for mistreating them and their return policy and replacement policy was really good. So it's going to get exciting with all this stuff because I just even saw the new Lexar SD. Uh, oh, the 256 UH, gig, like uh, ultra SDXC cards or US 2000 yep. mega, whatever. And then they have the 1500 and they're getting pretty cheap. Yeah. Getting pretty cheap. Yeah. And that, well, the, the new, a two and a half D NAND that they're using and the uh, uh, three level NAND that they're using is making some of these like SD form factors smaller and smaller to where they can get crazy write speeds. 
I just want to know when they're going to stop using freaking DVD references as the number scheme for these devices. You do know, people still have, do you have any DVDs? I don't have any DVDs. I'm looking around. Well, okay. So this is, this is a little bit ancient, but I've got a DVD right here. This is a, a written DVD with some uh, CNC laser control software. But here is the antiquated craziness. This, in my hand right now, is a one gig jazz drive. This is a one gig jazz drive. And this thing is the size of like four cassettes, three cassettes, <laughs> if you even remember what a cassette is. This is bigger than a hard drive and it's one gig. And then I have a USB to SCSI adapter over there on the table that takes this one gig jazz drive and allows me to export files from my really old school uh, recording stuff as well as my old school keyboards that were like early 90s vintage to get the data off of them and the audio off of them onto other projects. And these are crazy. They're old. They're no one, they don't even make them anymore. I have a whole stash of like 30 of these that I, I've held on to for years because I still have the stuff that uses them. And now they're like, they're kind of in vogue is like, look at that cool old thing, you know? Uh, like, I just cleared out an office and I found about a hundred Iomegas. Oh yeah. <laughs> you want to store 120 meg or a hundred meg? We've got the zip yeah, drive for you. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. All right. On that note, guys, uh, we'll see you next time. Talk to you later.